I'm Dawn Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room this week, Carly. Some news that you tipped me off to. A Connecticut lawsuit filed in oh. federal court by the Alliance Defending Freedom. They're being scolded by a federal judge who said, look, you can't misgender these transgender athletes. You cannot call them male. And he's told the lawyer for this hate group, it's okay if you call them transgender, but do not call them male. They're not on trial. They're 18-year-old young women. And the Alliance Defending Freedom is so ticked off by this instruction that they've asked for the judge to remove himself from the trial. <laughs> it shows how unhinged they are, Don. <laughs> that's that's what the that's what that is. I am I was when I was reading that, I was laughing just I mean, I, I, part of me was very upset, but part of me was also laughing because it just shows how far they'll go. But at the same time, this is not the first time that conservative that conservative judges, conservative um, legislators, and conservative lawyers have have tried to do this. This is a common tactic of the right wing in these types of situations. They want to try and set the terms, even down to setting the terminology of what can be discussed in the trial. And Judge Robert Chetigny is not having it. And I like the fact that the judge isn't having it. This is, I mean, to me, this is an early win right out the gate. This is a win before the game even starts. I mean, there was something that the judge said. I'm quoted here. I don't think we should be referring to the proposed interveners as male athletes. I understand that you prefer to use those words, but they're very provocative. And I think needlessly so. I don't think that you surrender any legitimate interest or position if you refer to them as transgender females. That is what this case is about. This isn't a case involving males who've decided they want to run in girls' events. This is a case about girls who say that transgender girls should not be allowed to run in girls' events. Bang, boom, drop the mic. That's exactly that, what this is about. Exactly. But again, it just shows how far they're willing to go to prove a point, to prove something pointless. And and once again, and just a reminder still to all the people who don't know, do not forget the Connecticut Republicans are raising money off this. They're trying to raise campaign cash by demonizing two teenagers. You think about that. And again, these girls aren't on trial. They didn't do anything except run and not always win either. One of the plaintiffs, one of the plaintiffs beat Terry Miller at least two times. Since this suit has been filed, another thing, I talked to the ACLU, which surprised me that nobody else who's been reporting on this story even bothered to get the ACLU's reaction. And they provided me legal precedence for this kind of treatment. This is the judge showing common courtesy that people deserve to be respected and called what they prefer to be called. I mean, that's just hitting it in the nail on the head right there. Now, on the other side, there was, of course, the National Review, you huh. know, the right wing clickbait site. The National Review have they were the ones that basically I mean, that's one thing you notice. And see, this is the one thing that's bothering about the coverage of this is that 
the I'm going to say it as a journalist, the legitimate press is not covering this story. And I think that the man that the legitimate press should. And yes, I use the term legitimate press because I feel that the right wing clickbait media, like the national reviews, the Breitbart's are not legitimate to me. They are propaganda sites and I will treat them as such. Well, uh, the, the national that is though, but then you have to also say that the advocate and the daily beast and slate are propaganda sites too, because they have a, very strong, even out sports, we have a very strong agenda that we believe in equality. So tell me why we are not a propaganda sign. Reason because an out sports, an out sports will reach out to the ADF and say, we're, we're going to give you your say in our, we will give you your say in our medium. You'll get an opportunity to say what you're going to say. And it's the same thing with most sites. The advocate reaches out to the other side and say, yay, we'll give you a say in our forum. You'll get an opportunity to spew your venom venom in our forum. Breitbart hasn't called you. No, no, no. And they're no, not gonna. Right. No, and they're not and gonna. Anything, now I will take... give. Now I will give Fox Sport. I will give Fox News a little bit of credit. They call you. Of course, they misgender you in Chiron. <laughs> I mean, and to me, that's not that's not kosher. That is not what legitimate reporting is. That's not what journalism is. Even well, if you have a slant. <laughs> even if you have a slant. Okay, hang on. I will treat you for a second. Let me just knock you off your soapbox for a second because one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years is every time the fundies, the the, the religious fundamentalists, um, do report on something I've written, and I've you know unfortunately been targeted by them very often, mm-hmm. they somehow have missed the fact that I myself am transgender, so I have not been misgendered, I've not been uh, attacked as anything other than. Dawn Ennis, this woman reporter at Outsports. It's a very unusual development. I've I've always w- sort of wanted to say to them, hey, by the way, did you forget to attack me? <laughs> <laughs> but but Dawn, you know where I'm coming from here. I do, I do. I just I have to I have to be I think one of the things that people forget about journalists is we all have bias. Everybody has a bias. There's nobody who's unbiased. The difference between us and those on the other side are that we work within our bias to try to be as unbiased in our reporting as possible. We try to acknowledge our bias and sort of put it like on the table. Like we, we put it out there and we say, okay, I've got this bias, but I'm going to do my job as much as possible. Whereas the other side basically says our bias is the right bias and we stand by the cross and we stand by the president. And oh my God, I don't want to talk about Trump today. I'm just so glad we have this forum where we can present both the views of transgender journalists, transgender women, and we are able to hopefully reach those folks who want to support us or learn more about us, our allies, and maybe even those people who don't get us but are willing to take a chance. I mean, that's what this is all about. It's all about communication. I'm not here to scold anybody. I'm not here to put my finger up their nose and say, nah, 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 nah. I'm just here to try to make a difference for people like Terry Miller, like Andrea Yearwood, who just want to live. Who like Carly and I mm-hmm. just want to live.
Exactly. And, and you know what, and, and uh, I'll just say the example, one of the examples that I draw from is you. Oh, and what, and yeah, it, no, I'm just giving you facts. You've been through hell and back to be who you are. Seven years of craziness. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but, but the thing is though, because you, because you fought, that gave me energy to fight. One thing I do want to talk about without me, one thing I do want to talk about though, I think it's been in the news. Not, not, I mean, it's an issue of important to us all is obviously the continuing emergency that we're undergoing. Coronavirus pandemic. We cannot forget that we are still under lockdown. And I'm going to say this, right? I'm going to say this because two people I care about a great deal today are hurting as we speak right now. They're hurting because they both work. They both work in healthcare. One is a facilitator at at a group home. The other one is an occupational therapy assistant. As we're speaking and as we're doing this podcast, they are mourning the losses of people they worked with in their in their respective facilities because of the because of COVID nineteen. Well, let's the cur- take a moment the cur- to acknowledge them. Yes. Yeah. The curve is not flattening. To everyone who wants to open things up, stop it. Stop it. Not now. Not yet. And I will say this, since we are talking about sports, I really believe the sports world needs to take a step back. NASCAR is going to start this week. Well, how about we get how about we get the perspective of someone who actually is like you, a transgender athlete who I'm sure is itching to get back out there. Would you set coordinates, please, for the Kansas City, Kansas area? Beam up Jamie O'Neill. Good morning, Earl. How are you? Welcome to the Transporter Room, Jamie. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Have you had a chance to hit the links at all, given the recent emergency? Honestly, I have not even been out to a golf course or a golf range. Um, So I've been sheltered in place. I think this is like day 58. Um, Courses and ranges have opened um, and have been open for some time, but I still haven't been out. I, I've decided to be better be safe than sorry. Um, I've got to think about myself and also my spouse. So that's why I haven't been out. Do you practice at home? Do you, you know, uh, knock a few balls around? When I talked yeah, to you on I Friday a- in our Zoom meeting, you said that you were not much of a putter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a hitting cage um, in my backyard. It's like a 10 by 10 by 10. And then I've got like a practice uh, mat that, you know, I can hit my driver and irons off. Um, So I'm still being able to practice. Um, I don't have access to like a launch monitor or, you know, my coaches. Um, But I'm just being patient. And maybe in a week or two, I'll probably, you know, start getting back out to see them. Now. One thing, just catching up with your story, Wollongong, New South Wales, and now you're in Kansas. That's one hell of a walkabout. How did you get from there to here? Yeah, I was actually born um, two hours south of Sydney in Nara. Um, I moved to Sydney in my late teens, or sorry, actually early 20s. Um, ended up moving to Madison, Wisconsin. Lived there for 13 years. I moved back to Australia. Uh, stayed for six months. 
uh, decided wasn't for me, so I moved back to Madison. Forgot that I hate winters, so I moved to Austin, <laughs> Texas. Stayed there for two and a half years, and then my wife got a position um, in Kansas City, so we moved to Kansas City uh, close to three years ago. There, Dinkum. <laughs> That's the only like expression I know from Australia is fair dinkum besides uh, the lines from the uh, Crocodile Dundee movie. <laughs> I, I can come up with many others, but they're probably not appropriate for being broadcast. <laughs> Carly, Carly, you have connections to Kansas City, don't you? Yes, I have relatives who live in Overland Park. And also growing up three hours north, north of there in Omaha. During the summer, Kansas City is like the Kansas City is the playground in a lot of Kansas City Metro became the playground as a as a little kid because I mean because two obsessions of mine were in Kansas City. Roller coasters are one and the Kansas City Royals are the other. So I had so spent a great deal of time in Kansas City. And plus, noticing Jamie, since you play a little softball, Gay World Series was in Kansas City last year. And from yeah, and everybody from our league. I also play in the Southern New England League here, which is our NAGA affiliated league here in Connecticut. Uh, everybody had a great time. The the, the teams that we sent there ever to a, every person said they had a wonderful time. Yeah, and, I went to the opening ceremony, and it was amazing. I've I've played in a couple of gay softball World Series, uh, Washington D.C., and also in uh, Dallas. And then I've played in the Asana in the uh, women's uh, league as well. Uh, played in, I think, three World Series, maybe four. So you know that we're both in Connecticut. And, you know, unlike most places, the curve is flattened and on its way down. Deaths are going down. We're supposed to be uh, reopening May 20th. What's the situation in Kansas City? What have you observed and are people itching to get out or are people worried that just for you and your spouse? I, is there a worry? I think there is worry um, by certain people. Then there's other people that thinks it's a hoax and, you know, they just want to get back to being go to a work, go to a restaurant, you know, and I understand it, you know, financially hurts a lot of people. Everyone is hurting from it. Um, but the numbers here do not seem to be going down. I think they're flattened at a high point, but I don't see them really going all the way down. You know, I look at other countries like Australia or New Zealand or Germany, and you can definitely see they're at the bottom of their curves and they're now starting to open up. And I feel like we're, we're trying to open up more at a peak. Scary. Once they say that things are going to be at least safe, safe enough to get back out there, take it. You're going to take you're going to take your driver and get back out there, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I I can go to a golf course now if I want to. Um, I'm I think I'm just going to give it another week or two weeks. I mean that I I'm fortunate. I can still train at home. I can work from home. You know, I'm very fortunate that way. Um. I think I've been to a store three times since this all happened. I've been fortunate. I can buy everything online food-wise and have it delivered. Um, I haven't, you know, really desired to go out to restaurants or anything. So I've been very fortunate that way. Um, but I, I drive past, you know, a grocery store and the parking lot's full and no one's wearing masks or no one's doing social distancing. 
Um, I just don't know. <laughs> I feel weird now when I see someone who's not wearing a mask. It used to be the opposite. Yeah, I feel I feel like you expect the worst, but you hope for the best. And sometimes hope it just doesn't, you know, get there. Well, that's a great expression for a lot of things. Expect the worst and hope for the best. That was sort of my um, my mantra for when I came out, <laughs> which was seven years ago this month. I'd like to um, ask if you would share with our listeners your coming out story. It was, I think, July of 2010. I was married at the time and told my ex-wife what was going on. And, you know, she's still a good friend and a very great supporter. Uh, we ended up getting a divorce. I started my transition, seeked out, you know, the best doctors, the best care that I could possibly afford. I also worked three jobs to be able to afford everything. You know, started off with therapy. You know, my biggest issue, like I knew I could do everything. It was telling people. And that was something I worked with my therapist. And the way I, I try to tell the people, I was already on the train and I left the station. And every every stop along the, my journey, and there's going to be many, I need to get people on the train with me. They might not be on my train, but I want to get them on the next train. They could easily walk off the platform. So I decided to be very honest, very truthful. And I wrote letters to all of my friends, all of my family. And, and it's difficult. I mean, they're 10,000 miles away. And, you know, most people never knew what this meant. Um, but I explained it in detail. You know, I, it was pretty gory what, you know, everything that you, you go through. And I told them exactly what it was. And surprisingly, everyone supported me. I worked at an engineering firm of 500 people, and they were amazing. And I worked at two different liquor stores in, um, in, back in Madison, Wisconsin. And, you know, I have to, I'm dealing with the public. And, you know, what's their reactions going to be like? And ultimately, people were amazing. And, you know, I planned for the worst, and I hoped for the best, and I got the best. And I, I think I was very fortunate. I want to know how being in sports played played into the following statement you told Golf Week. I was prepared to lose my family, my friends, my career, but what I knew was I was not going to lose my life. I said something very similar when I came out to my family four years ago. I'm, I'm just wondering, how did sports play into that statement? How has sports factored into your journey? I... I've always played sports. I've never been the best at any sport. I mean, I've, I've played and tried everything. And that's something, you know, just a part of my upbringing. And I've loved playing no matter what it was. I was always going to give 100%. And, you know, I've always loved golf. I've got great memories of playing golf with my, my dad. I mean, I've always been able to hit the ball a long way it was not always straight it might have been two fairways across um in cricket i could hit the ball a long way wasn't a great batsman field hockey you know i could hit the ball with a lot of a lot of power but didn't make me the best player i mean i just had a natural ability to hit a ball hard um 
and then it's something that I've always loved to play. And when I did transition, I, I still kept playing golf. Um, the winters in Wisconsin were terrible, so you only got to play summer, so it was a short time. Um, and I followed a lot of people on YouTube back in the day before I transitioned, back when it was, you know, the yin thing to do, and learned from a lot of different people. And I became good friends with somebody on YouTube, and they had a very hard time with their transition and their family. And they killed themselves. They took their head off with a shotgun. Oh, my goodness. And I said I was never going to do that. I was going to get through everything, no matter how hard it was, no matter what the cost was, I can do this. And, you know, I put a very detailed plan. I mean, I work for an engineering company, so I put a very detailed plan together, put together a budget, my timeline, and then start breaking it down by goals. What do I need to do? And, you know, started just plotting along and, you know, I look back at how scared I was and now I sit back and think, oh, my God, that was so easy. And, you know, being able to play sports um, after I did transition, um, I I was never in the LGBT community. I was a straight male, heterosexual all the way. I mean, I had really no contact with the LGBT community. And that's where I started playing softball in the Naga and Asana um, with the Badgerland softball in Madison. And that was sort of my big coming out to the community. And, you know, at six foot two, I turn up and I hadn't played softball in probably five years. And, you know, I guess I put on a bit of a show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do want to ask you a question about golf. But first, I just wanted to say, I am so sorry for your friend, for their family, for you. Mm -hmm. um, suicide is a, is a thing that I think a lot of people outside our community don't understand because they hear these statistics that 41% of trans people either uh, have attempted or, um, you know, thought about ending their life. I, I'm one of those people. And they don't understand that it's because of the lack of acceptance that people who are trans turn to suicide it's not because of mental illness it's not because there's something wrong it's because it's what's wrong around us that people feel that they have no other option but to leave this world and i just want to point to people that if you go to our facebook page if you go to our twitter account you'll see resources for anyone who might be thinking about or even just toying with the idea that maybe that's the way i can tell you from experience from having survived suicide attempts, that it's not the way. And it may seem like the only way, but it's not. So I hope that everyone listening will take advantage of those resources, including the Trans Lifeline where Carly works. That's a part and parcel of what we do is trying getting that 41, trying to get that number down. Because that there's a number that I think about often, it's 41. 41, 41% of us try either either attempt suicide and or complete it. And that's the number that I'd like to see drawn down. And a lot of that is based on building community. And that's one of the things I mean, um, Jamie, just again, just something you said, it was very similar to something I told my family when I came out to them, 
and they were all shocked. And this was one of those worst case scenario things where they're like, I don't support this. I don't understand this. Why are you doing this? And I told them, and they said, "What? think about what's going to do to your family. And I remember looking a cousin of mine in the eye and saying, I'm not going to apologize for saving my own life. Because that, I mean, that's what's at the margin. But one thing is, how much did, how much, for Jamie, for you, how much as you were going through this transition, what did it mean for you to have the power to hit a, hit a softball or a golf ball a long way? Because um, based on your own website, a lot of people quoted said you're you're gifted and you do hit the hell out of a softball and out of a golf ball. How did that factor in? How did that factor into your confidence as you went through your journey? I, if it did. I definitely think it's a way that I've been able to let aggression out. Um, I think being able to play sports and compete, be around people. It, it gives you a release. You're not focused on your transition. At that moment, I'm thinking about hitting that softball. I'm trying to thinking, I'm going to hit a line drive. I'm going to try to hit a home run. I'm, you know, or I'm on the golf course. I'm going to, I'm going to try to drive that green. Um, and, you know, for me, it was a huge release to be able to play sport and compete. Um, and make friends and you know going to like the world series and both in the inaugura and asana for softball and sure I, I mean i got heckled by some people and people in the spectators but then once they got to know me they're just like oh my god i'm so sorry like you're a really nice person and people instantly if you are different they instantly have to hate you for some reason, I don't know why, because I'm different. And then once they get to know you, they're just like, well, you're just a normal person, just like me. You're a little different, but you're still just like me. So it's interesting. Carly and I have a friend who's a transgender advocate. Her name is Hannah Simpson. And I love to quote her with this question that she asks people who don't understand transgender. Jamie, are you left-handed or right-handed? Right-handed. If you were to write your name or write me a letter in longhand with your left hand, how would that look? Well, you can't even read my handwriting to start off with, and that's being right-handed. <laughs> so left-handed, you're not going to see anything. <laughs> well, imagine that you, all your life you've been writing with your left hand, and then I came along and I said, hey, why don't you try writing with your right hand? See if that works for you. It would be a whole different world. It would be like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what's natural. And as Hannah says, that is what transgender really is. It's doing what comes naturally to you, but that you've never been allowed to do. And I love that example because I think a lot of people can get it. The only people who don't get it are the people who say, I'm ambidextrous. I'm like, ah, oh, screw you. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a question that um, I asked Caitlyn Jenner, who also loves golf. And she told me she prefers to hit from the men's tees. It sort of, for her, eliminates any question about whether she's trying to take advantage of her gender transition. Where do you hit from? So how about we, I'll change that. 
on a golf course, the tees are based on handicap and you play from what would be an appropriate tee spot that you get the enjoyment out of the game of golf. So people that have a very high handicap, like new to golf, should hit very forward because generally they're not going to be good. They don't have the distance. As you get better and like maybe become a scratch golfer, you hit from the championship tees or tiger tees. But I prefer not to say men's or women's tees. Um, I know that's my preference and probably I'm going to have some haters. Um, but I definitely hit from the championship tees. When I play in a women's league, I have to hit from the, you know, from the women's tees because um, that's the rules. And, you know, but I don't know. Having to say that a woman has to hit from a, a red tee, which is typical, or a women's tee, is just ridiculous. Good for you. Well, I hit from the Carly tees. That's also known as putt-putt golf. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a lousy golfer. <laughs> but Makes two of us. Makes two yeah, of us. No, if you've but, ever golfed in Ireland, believe it or not, the kids there, the kids hang out at the golf course to heckle the golfers like me who cannot, um, uh, you know, connect with the ball. My dad used to say if there were three strikes in golf, I'd be out at every hole. Um, I was, I remember <laughs> being in Ireland and having this kid heckle me. Oh, you should be in the U.S. Open. <laughs> <laughs> no, more like the U.S. closed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I'm, t I'm a terrible golfer. I had my own set of golf clubs that my dad um, bequeathed to me, but um, I'm sorry. I just, I, I, I'm a, I like putting. Unlike you, I'm actually a very good putter. And that's probably years of miniature golf raising three children. But um, yeah, not, not the driver. Jamie, are you looking forward to that first competition you get in? Because from the looks of things, you're doing the work, and apparently you even have a couple. You have some sponsors now. You're gear. You're gearing up for an opportunity at the pro in the pro long drive ranks. Um, how do you think you'll do in the in 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 the rookie in your rookie season doing it? How do you think you'll do in this first season, coronavirus permitting, of course. Yeah. So I I've had to set. I have a very I've got a great team of coaches behind me. So they've been, we need to set your expectations of, you know, where, where and how far and what you're going to be able to do. So my goal is to be in the top four. And um, I've been very fortunate. I've got, as I said, great, you know, personal trainer. I've got two different coaches that have been able to give me great advice. And, you know, they're learning that they're not long drive coaches but they've done a lot of you know like me looking at youtube and you know following other people and, and learning the sport i mean it's very different from a normal golf swing um huge ground force generation um you know jumping up and exploding at the ball you know and it's it it's a very explosive and loud you know golf game and you know spectators are yelling and screaming i mean it's, it's a great atmosphere um, I haven't got to compete yet. I've just watched it on TV and I just love it. Um, so I've, I've been fortunate. Um, Yeti Golf and Shark Attack, uh, Reaper Shafts, they've provided equipment for me, which I'm so grateful for. You know, they've been a huge supporter of me. Um, you know, I'm still looking for big sponsorship, you know, but 
it's very hard to find sponsors, especially as a transgendered athlete. And I know I haven't competed, um, but I'm hoping, you know, once I do compete and, you know, get into events, you know, sponsorship opportunities would come. You know, I'd love to see these brands that, you know, have pride, you know, lines, you know, Nike and Under Armour, you know, really look after their, you know, LGBT athletes. Well, it's good to see right out of the gate that that you are getting some that you are getting the corporate partners, especially in the golf industry, getting on board. Now, how have you been how have you managed to work that out and work through the apprehensions they may have, especially given all the all the recent contra, quote unquote controversy and unpleasantness regarding trans athletes? How have you been able to kind of work to kind of work through that, grease the wheels? and get the sponsors on board yeah i mean at the moment i have really one the one sponsor and you know they've been very supportive um i've been also looking to compete in uh, down in oklahoma they there's a long drive association a small thing they've been very supportive and they're like yeah we're 100 open um and i know in the golf world which is very male dominated you know, it's very anti me competing. Um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of negative feedback, but I've also had amazing feedback too. I've also, like, I don't engage in engaging people on social media. What I have realized from when I first transitioned 10 years ago to now, people do that for me, which is amazing. You know, I, when I do scroll through and, you know, see someone post something negative, I see someone post something positive and, you know, they're engaging in, you know, the conversation. Um, I've, I've never understood people that have time on their hands to search out transgender articles and have to put their comments on. Doesn't make sense to me. Jamie, let me tell you, somebody who's dealt with it and, and somebody who's who's directly had people come to their Twitter page to attack them. <laughs> these people are some of these people just are just hateful people, people. Others of those work for people who have agendas uh, or as I like to call them, paid professional transphobes. And, and they're always I mean, they're always going to be those. But the good thing is there are allies. And again, there are people like your sponsors. Who are stepping in and that's a good thing to see i mean in a sense though did it did it surprise you how how relatively easy a sponsor guy like yeti just came on board and said hey we're down with this let's go win some lawn drive championships i mean did it did it surprise you a little bit um i i was surprised and you know it was just a, a random email i reached out to them you know they're not they're not a major brand that, are, that is out there um you know but they're stepping up and they want to you know have someone that could be a world champion using their equipment which is great for them and like i've referred people that want to get in a long drive i'm like hey reach out to yeti and shark attack they've got great products it's affordable um i've absolutely loved hitting their clubs i've gained a lot of distance since using it and they've been great to me. So, you know, I love to give support back to the people that have supported me. One of the women who I've had um, 
um, not always pleasant interactions, but we try to keep it above the fray, is herself a transgender golfer, Mian Bagger. It might be pronounced Bagger. I have never spoken to her in person. She tweeted the other day, the recognition of actual biological sex is crucial to addressing issues in sport with regard to transitioned men and women. That a judge appears to be demanding the adoption of fanciful thinking and language might be respectful in a social setting, but not in a court of law. My question to you is, there are always going to be differing opinions, even in the trans community. We don't all march to the same drummer. Where has your position evolved in terms of competing as a transgender woman against cisgender golfers? Was there a point or is there a point where you still consider that it's not fair? <laughs> so, without going down a wormhole, which this is, so I've everyone's like, oh, you have an advantage. You went through puberty, you've got bigger muscles, you've got a bigger body, you're taller, you've got bigger lungs, you've got bigger hands, you've you've got this, you've got that. And it's very interesting that if I look back at the 2019 Women's World Long Drive, that one of the smaller competitors beat a someone that had, you know, five or six inches on them and a stockier build. Therefore, their whole argument that bigger, bigger muscles, taller, is going to have an advantage has just been blown out of the water. So that got me thinking, like, is there an advantage or there is no advantage? Um, same on the men's side. You know, Kyle Berkshire absolutely rips a ball and is a, is a killer golfer. And Like, there is bigger, stronger competitors that are taller, a lot more muscle, but they're not out hitting him who's, you know, in a smaller, shorter frame. So in this case, is that correct that I have an advantage? I think it's pretty equal. I mean, my testosterone levels are you know, minimal, like I've been, um, you know, on estrogen. I mean, I had my sex change operation in 2012 and, you know, that's such a long time ago. The effects that hormonal treatment and the lack of testosterone supporting or producing uh, parts of your body being, uh, you know, currently in your body, those all have effect. I personally have taken umbrage at the term biological male, which as you heard at the beginning of our podcast episode, the uh, people in a lawsuit who want to stop transgender athletes from competing are using to try to um, portray transgender women and girls as just boys dressing up. I am not a biological male. I have been on hormones now a decade. I have um, been... Uh, post-op uh, two years. And it's very clear to me that my biology is female. I have female cells. I have a female body. I may not have all the inner workings that every most every woman has, 
but not all women have uh, those uh, parts. Are you going to say that women with hysterectomies are no longer female? Are you going to say women who can't produce children are not female? I think there are all kinds of ways to be a woman. And I just happen to be another version of one. I'm not the same as a cisgender woman, but I have biology and my biology is female. And I'm just grateful to hear you say that, you know, it is fair because in basketball, there's Elena Deladon. In all kinds of sports, there are people who are so much bigger than your average competitor. I would be fine with this if they're going to say that when Michael Phelps swims, he has to swim in his own category because he's such a bigger wingspan than all the other swimmers. I'm sure the men who competed against him must have thought, gee, this isn't really fair. But nobody really makes that complaint out loud. So if they're not going to make that complaint out loud about Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt or Lena Deladon, then I say, shut up. <laughs> and it, you know, I, I looked at, you know, uh, I can't think of the girl's name, um, the 15-year-old that won a state title in wrestling wrestled against boys in her own age, in her own weight class, and won a state championship and beat them. But hang on a minute. You're saying that these people saying that men have an advantage over women and will always win. Well, hang on a minute. This is proof that it doesn't. I look at Danica Patrick, you know, in NASCAR and IndyCar, you know, in car racing. A race car driver is a supreme athlete. Well, hang on a minute. How did she beat men at racing if she's in superior? And, you know, there's many cases. Same if you're saying, you know, what you're born. Well, if you're a uh, female to male and you're, you know, now taking testosterone, but you're being now told to you have to compete against women. Well, isn't that unfair? You know, it's... There's so many different scenarios behind it. There is, I don't think there, you know, as to my knowledge, is no trans athlete has won a gold medal at the Olympics. There's not that many pro trans athletes that are out there dominating sports. So... Everyone's saying, oh, you're going to ruin sports. You're going to ruin women's sports. But where are all these trans champions that you all think are out there? I think the girl you're talking about is Heaven Fitch in North Carolina. Yes. I follow the LPGA. And the, the top five in driving average last year in the LPGA all had five very distinct body types. <laughs> they were five very different women. In fact, two of the, in fact, the in fact, two of the top five, all of them can drive above 280. All, all can like nail it off the tee, 286 yards and up. I mean, two of them are look real thin. I mean, two of them look real thin. One is a bit stockier, but still has those long levers. And, that gets me thinking, Jamie, how much of driving that ball off the tee is strength and how much of it is technique? Well, there's technique is huge. Um, flexibility is huge. Speed is hugely generated. 
And, you know, you're generating a lot of speed through moving your body and creating torque. Then you're combining that with your ground force coming up from the ground to generate the faster club head speed, which will increase how hard you hit the ball to give you your ball speed. But then you have to have the right, you know, launch angle, angle of attack, spin on the ball to be able to get distance. So there's a lot of, you know, different variables to be able to hit that ball as far as we can. Um, you know, there, there's some great competitors out, you know, especially in the women's, you know, they're absolutely killing the ball. Um, there's This year, I think there's going to be, if you're not hitting, you know, 350 yards, you're not going to be in probably the top, probably the top eight. Um, you know, the, the women are really training hard. I think it's going to be a fabulous competition. Um, and I really look forward to being able to compete. How much of an advantage do you feel your engineering background gives you? <laughs> uh, I don't, I, I'm not sure if it really gives me that, that much of a background. Um, there oh, is you're the one who talked about torque, speed, yeah. torque, speed, club, club speed. I figured that you could probably go to a blackboard and say, okay, I need to do, okay, I need to do at this speed. I need this azimuth. I need this here. I need that here to produce this number. It, there is definitely a lot of science behind it. Um, you know, having access to launch monitors, um, it allows us to really dial in our technique um, and skill versus a normal golf swing. Like, you know, we tee the ball up higher. Uh, generally, the ball is a lot further in front of us. You know, we're coming up and, you know, really jumping and swinging hard at that ball, you know, to get the, our right launch angle. Um, it's something that, when as a regular golfer, I never really thought about, you know, I just got there, put the tee, you know, ball on the tee and swing away. Um, now it's something that I, you, I really focus on and it's something that I really train on and you definitely see the results. Um, and that's something my coaches are there for because I just want to hit the ball. That ultimately I just want to hit the ball. They're the ones that are giving me the direction on what I need to do. What's your stance on teen transgender athletes? Now, these are girls who may not have been on hormones, but on puberty blockers, or maybe not anything other than deciding that they will start a social transition. A lot of people who are our allies say, I can understand your rights as a transgender woman, as an adult, but I'm having trouble understanding the um, fairness of having transgender girls compete against cisgender girls because they haven't really had anything other than a social transition so far, which of course, you know, in most places, girls who are under 18 don't uh, have surgery, but they might have uh, hormones starting at 14 or 16, depending on where they live and how their parents feel. So I was wondering what your position is do you think that transgender girls should be extended the same uh, fairness credentials that we transgender women expect? I I definitely do think 
that yes, they need to be treated equally and fairly. Now, majority of people that are transitioning, majority, I'm going to probably say majority, are not really into sports. They're into anime and sci-fi and not really doing man, what I would say manly things. Um, I know a lot of people that do that do suffer with gender identity disorder, especially uh, male to female. The first thing you want to do, they they'll try to do, is do the most manliest thing you can possibly do, because that's going to make you a man and you'll get over it. I'm going to join the military or I'm going to go do weightlifting. Then you realize that didn't work very well for you. Um, so there is a small population of people with gender identity disorder that are athletes and for them to be able to compete you know as we say like suicide rates but also the social aspect of being able to be around their peers and be accepted is huge and like i look whether somebody wins a high school or a, um you know an event when they're 13 or 14 and they're transgender and might have a school record, in 10 years' time, no one's ever talking about that record that this person ever won. You know, it's controversial and there is only coverage if a transgendered teen or athlete beats a cisgendered. There is never any media coverage if a cisgendered person beats a trans woman or a trans man. So why is that? Well, it's not controversial. And when you hear these stories, what's your gut instinct when you hear a story, when you're hearing some of the stories and some of the, especially some of the vitriol of what you're seeing, if you've heard about some of these bills that including, like, for example, the bill in Idaho that was recently passed, what your what are some of your thought? What is some of your gut reactions when you see that? At the same time, what is your gut reaction seeing, for example, in the state you live in now? where they took away all the surgical requirements to have gender markers and birth certificates change. Your gut reaction when you hear, when you're seeing these things play out. And I mean, it, it, it horrifies me to start off with because you've got generally these states that are trying to pass anti-transgender bills. They've got two separate bills trying to go forward. You've got one on the sporting side saying, you know, you can't compete or until you've done, you've transitioned, you know, you can't compete and you've had had surgery. But then on the other side, they're trying to block anyone under 18 in getting medical, uh, you know, access to a medical doctor, you know, to be treated, you know, even psychologically to be treated. So now that person will go through uh, puberty and you know, in that state and then finally be allowed to transition. I mean, you it, it's crazy. Um, you know, I've written, you know, to all senators and legislation and governors in all of these states. And, you know, I provided them, look, we have a standard of care. We have policies in place like, a, you know, the Olympic guidelines that have been put in place, um, NCA, NCAA, you know, there is policies in place. Why can't, you know, at for a school level, we have something similar? Um, you know, 
you know, who is really that worried about some high school record? I want to ask you a question that we get asked a lot. Do you feel every time you compete against a cisgender woman that you will win? Has that been the case for you, that you always win? I wish I did win every single time. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not Um, true, right? It's just not true. It's a fallacy. Yeah, it'd be like saying, oh, I'm now going to take up gymnastics. Oh, I'm going to dominate the women's because I'm transgender. (laughs) Um, No, I'm not. Um, But it's the same in like any sport, like short softball. I can hit the ball pretty hard. I don't have a great throwing arm. Hang on a second. I mean, you know, I'm not a great athlete at everything. Um, There's no way, if you asked me to go out and run a mile, I'd probably fall over and die to be honest <laughs> you and me both you and me both carly's the runner in this group but wanna, you too. yeah but let me let me follow up with just one last question for you before we let you go and we're so grateful for your time where do you see yourself in say five or ten years you've been uh yourself for 10 years now do you see yourself still competing maybe even uh you know as a um top 10 pro i mean where do you think you'll be um I I think as this year goes, you know, goes along and I can get back to, you know, playing golf, um, like I haven't played a normal round of golf. I only done that for a little bit and, you know, my handicap's pretty low. Um, But I would like to see whether, hey, can I be a, you know, scratch golfer? That would be a really idea. Can I compete? um, In regional or, you know, state events would be really nice. You know, you can always dream, yeah, I'd love to play in the open or something, <laughs> you know. Um, but at the moment, like, long drive is, you know, is a passion for me right now. I would definitely love to play, you know, more serious golf. It, I love the friendship. I love meeting people. Um, the best round of golf I ever played, like, the scoring-wise, you know, I didn't realize I'd scored the best that I ever had, but it was the best round of golf because I played with a World War II veteran. And, and you know, he was 100 years old. And, you know, he could only hit the ball about 100 yards. And he's like, I'm playing off the women's tees. Best round of golf I ever had because the conversations that I got to have in his life, you know, and he, the way he grew up playing golf and the places he's been, it was an amazing round of golf. You know, and, and at the end, I got home and I entered my score and my handicap and realized it's the best round of golf I've ever played, but it was a memory of getting to play with him. Oh, that's wonderful. That is a good story to wrap this up with. Jamie, thanks for joining us. And I'm going to tell you what, you hit a softball diamond again, let me know. If you come to some Naga tournament or whatever, we definitely have to meet up, even if it is on the diamond. That sounds like a great plan to me. And if you find yourself in Connecticut, I promise I won't make Carly make you run. Okay, I'd be fine fine with that. You can join me on the couch with a cheetah. We are going to make Dawn run. We got no, 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 no. no. I'm very happy on my couch. Yeah, I I think if the zombies attacked, I would just sacrifice myself and just lay down for. (laughs)
<laughs> you and me both. And you're bigger than me, so you can do you can go first. <laughs> Slow them down. Great talking to you. And don't that, when this is all over, let's have you back and, and you can update us on on how you're doing with your stroke and everything else. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate your time and having me on here. Setting coordinates for the Kansas City area. You know, I have a little tear in my eye when she told that story about the World War II person. I mean, wow. It reminded me of the one thing I did like about golf was having conversations with my dad. It, it was a place where we could, you know, chat and talk. Although there were times when he said, stop talking, Donnie. <laughs> well, that's, I do talk a lot. Well, you know, I I still I still kind of follow the the advice of Mark Twain that golf is a good walk spoil. But no, actually, <laughs> I actually, no, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the game. I'd enjoyed it more if I was better at it. But yeah, no, I, I know. But I'm, at the same I really time, hope things get better. I hope that yeah. we can get to the point where we can have a few long drive events so that so that Jamie can get out there. Because well, um, yeah, but I wasn't going to say this to Jamie, but I personally believe that golf courses are a waste of um, space that we could be using for other purposes, like you know, homes for the homeless, you know, uh, affordable housing. There's just so much wasted space in our country with golf courses, and I don't want to anger the golfers. I'm just, <laughs> can't we have fewer? Do we have to have this many? Really? Well. I personally think that since we're talking about sports, I, I don't, I don't think we should be giving teams subsidized stadiums. But that's just me. I mean, uh, I agree with that too. <laughs> I mean, and that's the only way to get built is with the taxpayers, right? Jeez. No, no, no. The come on, you're the owners in every major professional sport are all worth at least two point one billion dollars individually. They can build. They can build their. They have. They have the money to build their own stadium. They can build and finance their own thing. Joe Robbie did. I mean, the, 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 where the, where the Miami Dolphins played before now was called, was literally called Joe Robbie Stadium because he built it, he financed it, he owned it. I mean, for a long time, you didn't, you didn't have public funding until all of a sudden they realized, until all of a sudden a lot of rich people realized, you know what, you can put the taxpayer on the hook for this. I mean, in the past, you could. In the past, you didn't put the taxpayer on the hook for this. Well, wait a minute. Shea Stadium was built with city financing, right? It was, but for a, but for a long time, that was an exception to the rule in a lot of cases. And from about the nineteen from about the nineteen thirties all the way up to like the mid nineteen sixties, a lot of the stadiums were they were, if they were built with public if they were built with public money. The team had to pay had to pay the city to use the they paid a use fee. Now it's like the team is saying, "Oh no, now we're gonna go in. We're gonna have you pay for. We're gonna have you kick in all of it for it, but we run it and we'll. But we run it, we manage it, and basically we'll keep anything else out of it. That the public funding of sport is a relatively new phenomenon, but for me, I don't think. I just say I say it like this: a, a person who's worth ten billion dollars, you want me to pay for their stay, pay for their playground? You want me to pay for another Jerry Jones eyesore? No, but that's just me. 
Well, no, I think it's both of us. I agree with you. Hey, what you been binging lately? Actually, I've been what I've been doing is kind of off the sci-fi path, but it, but oh. it's still a very larger than life superhero. Actually, there's one sci-fi slash superhero thing I did watch. I I broke down and got Superman Red Sun, the 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 animated movie adaptation of one of my favorite graphic novels, and it was good. And it was it was good. I thought it could have been better. I mean, they they kind of changed some things around in the graphic novel, but overall, I mean, Dawn, I know you probably wouldn't like it because it because Superman would be playing for the other team in this one. No, no, actually, I like alternate realities. We're actually well, doing that here uh, this week on What If Week at Outsports. So no, Dawn, I love that stuff. Don, I have rather enjoyed your story, and I'm actually writing one of those for the What If Week. And yes, you are. I'm building we won't talk that for about the What that yet. Wait, let's not let's not give it away. Let, no, let we're the not. Listeners be surprised because it's no, coming. I, I'm going to be writing. I'm going to be writing it right after I right after this podcast. I'm going to be nailing it out because I was on a run. I was on oh. a run. I was on a run a couple days ago, and that's when it hit me of how to build the timeline for it. Okay. So, but. The biggest thing I'm binging right now is actually the last dance. Hmm. The the big ESPN Michael Jordan like, docu- documentary on the last season of Michael Jordan. But really at another level, this is looking at Michael's entire career and looking at it from the, because a lot of people complained about how it kind of works in flashbacks. I liked it. I really enjoyed the way that they're that they're laying the story out. I like the voices that are a part of it. I even like the soundtrack that they use for it because I have grown in a sense, Michael Jordan's career spanned. It spanned my teenage years, well into my adulthood, well into my career. I mean, I had intersections with, with Michael in my career. I mean, I have, I mean, one of the things, one of the biggest things I had the opportunity to see was his return with the Washington Wizards. And, but I like the way that they're settling. There's been a lot of complaints about this uh, as far as it's very antiseptic. Um, this is a commercial for Michael Jordan. I don't agree. I don't agree with the idea. Is it is it painting? It doesn't paint Jordan in the in as positive a light as people would think it doesn't toss as many softballs i think as people think i mean they go into serious detail the gambling thing the the uh, the um, they go very deep deeper than quite frankly i thought that they maybe should in the allegation that his gambling had something to do with the murder of his father I mean, they didn't, I mean, I was expecting this really softball foo-foo thing in reading all the press about it, but in actually watching it, I'm like, okay, where's the softballs at? Because in many ways there were, did, did they expect to go deep and be controversial? No, I didn't expect that, but I wasn't expecting some of the things that I saw. I wasn't expecting them to go really deep to go as deep as they did, for example, into his father's murder, into the gambling allegations. I I wonder what other things that they will that they will talk about that they may discuss because there's still two more show there's still two more parts of this left, 
And it's very interesting. I mean, they talk about the 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 incidents where he hit team, where he punched out teammates. The Steve Kerr incident. They went deep into that. I, it in many ways, if you thought Michael Jordan was a superhero, you will still think so. But if you thought Michael Jordan was a prick, you will get more reasons why you may think so. Watching this as well, it it doesn't day it doesn't defy him as much as people much as some of the press said that this does i am binging the star trek series that most people don't like star trek enterprise um i know Why that it's not like it <laughs> because it it just seemed to be trying too hard and it was just not seen as one of the more popular series it only lasted four seasons like unlike the other shows but it lasted uh, one more season than the original series. And I'm sort of, you know, in between right now. Picard is over. Star Trek Lower Decks hasn't started yet. Star Trek Discovery Season 3 hasn't begun yet. And um, my best friend, Maya Monet, she just finished binging all the Star Wars movies on D- Disney Plus because um, The Rise of Skywalker is now available on Disney Plus. So she sat and watched all the movies from beginning to end, the entire series. And I love Star Wars, but I don't think I could sit through all those movies at once. <laughs> there's only, oh, are you talking about the, really? There's only one Star Wars movie that I could watch again and again. Which one? Empire? There, there's only, no, there's only two. Okay. New Hope and Empire are the only ones I can watch again and again and again. Yeah. I really the, enjoy those two. Those are my two I mean, favorites. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, those are mine. I mean, especially for, if nothing else for me, the last, the last 15, the last 15 minutes of New Hope, like I said, it's, it's one of my favorite scenes in any movie. That's the force, Luke. Um, Although I have to say, when I was watching The Empire Strikes Back for the very first time, first I was shocked at the revelation about Vader, but I was just terribly disappointed in George Lucas because it's a cliffhanger. It's like, it ends and you're like, what? That's what I liked about it. But that's what I liked about it. See, I liked that. I mm-hmm. I liked two things I liked about Empire. Even when I saw Empire, I was in third grade when Empire came out. Oh shush. And I <laughs> what I liked about Empire was was two at the time I may not have gotten it because I was sad at the end of Empire. Mm-hmm. I remember going home and my dad's like, my dad's like, why are you sad? I said, because the, because the rebels lost. Yeah. Right. And I was, my dad yeah. would tell me they, they didn't lose. They're losing. There's a yeah. difference. That was my dad always looking to teach a lesson in one way or another. But that was the thing I loved about empire is that the rebels were, were on their heels for a lot of that movie. They didn't, I mean, Yavin wasn't Yavin wasn't an ending. No, mm-hmm. it was the end of the beginning in a lot of ways. What what the rebels managed to do was we didn't beat the empire, we bloodied their nose. But yeah. and as affected, the empire struck back and said, I don't think you quite understand what you're dealing with. They they were <laughs> but that's what made that move, but that's what made it so special is that in this case, and for me being and third being a young kid at the time that's a life lesson that i maybe needed was that no 
sometimes hey the good guys don't win because well, I maintain be that Empire was the no, that's true. I maintain that Empire was the best of the movies. It's my favorite I one. I was 16. I loved everything about that movie. The soundtrack, the special effects. It just it was such a great sequel. One of those rare cases where the sequel is even better than the original. Like the Rife of Khan is one of those sequels. And um, I, I hope that at some point, I hope people do give Star Trek Enterprise. A second look because maybe it wasn't everything people wanted and it was the last star trek series before discovery but it did have some really innovative writing and really clever plot devices and i think the fourth season which is what i'm in right now the last season i thought it was one of their best and they should have been given another chance but That's anyway I, I liked enterprise i yeah, I, did too. I enjoyed it i mean but you have to remember one thing about a lot of trekkers when something new comes, it uh, one thing it always takes a couple years. Yeah. It always takes it always takes some time to marinate because I remember when people didn't like. I remember when people after when when um M encounter at uh, encounter at Farpoint came out when the when Next Generation came out, there was a lot of Trekkers all up in arms. Oh, they hated it. There yeah. were people up in arms. We hate the new captain. We hate this. We hate that. Two years yeah. later. Vive Jean-Luc Picard. I mean, everyone <laughs> was on board. People got on board. Now, me, I'll admit, I was on board. From, yeah, me I too. Was board, I was on board from far point on. I really, I like this new Star Trek. I mm -hmm. Plus, being a big fan of LeVar Burton, I like the fact that he was, I was like, wait a minute, they got LeVar Burton in this? Okay. You mean, a yeah. you mean the black guy doesn't die in this? Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he, drives, he drives a ship in the first episodes. I mean, he's Scotty. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, and, remember, and, no, at first he was Sulu. He was he, Helmsman at first, and then he moved to yes. engineering. And yeah. I, I always joked with people, it's like, they got a black guy who's blind who's driving the ship. What does that mean? <laughs> but, hey, let's put it this way. He's a great actor and a director. And an episode I just watched uh, late last night was a LeVar Burton episode. And there's talk that LeVar Burton has signed on for a role in Star Trek Picard season two. Good, please. Let me have my Jordy LaForge back. <laughs> please. Yeah. Please. In one way, because I like, also, I like the fact, for example, Guinan's next year. Guinan comes back in season two. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. one of my favorite scenes in one of the least liked Star Trek movies, it wasn't the worst Star Trek movie. Star Trek V holds that um, terrible worst Star Trek movie. But in Star Trek Insurrection, LaVar standing on a bridge watching the sunrise for the first time with eyes that have just regrown uh, in his head because of mm -hmm. a, a mysterious force on this planet. And it is such a moving scene. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but his acting is just so much further above almost all actors of his generation. He's just such a great actor, director. I would love to have LeVar Burton come on our show. How about we get LeVar Burton to come you, on the transporter if room. Burton, if you get LeVar Burton, I will bow to you. <laughs> I'll so you, just say well, that right now. Oh, come on. You bow to me all the time anyway. <laughs> oh, shut No, but, well, no, but he's really... Let's try. Unsung. Let's try. Let's no, get LeVar on the But show. you know, he's really unsung for all the things he's done in his career. I That's really true. think he's he's really an, an it was like underrated resource. It was like Roots and then everyone was like, yeah, whatever. And yeah, he's you know, cool. Kofi Kente, and then after that, oh, he kind of dropped off. 
oh, Kunta Kinte was a beginning. That's right. He did That's so, a high point. And, yeah. and, and another thing is he's a he's an author as well. That's true. And I love how that's, he um, works with kids. It's just amazing. Well, see, that's another thing. I really, I, I really think to me, that's his strongest suit is like his, like his children's and young adult literature he's written. I think that's mm-hmm. his strong. I think that's his strongest suit. And don't forget and, reading rainbow. Oh, <laughs> come on, reading rainbow is like, I mean, reading rainbow Classic. is to that generation. What Sesame street was to mine. True. In a lot of to me, in a lot of ways. Now, a quick thing I do want to I do want to point out because I will be talking about this. We talk about when we talk about what we're binging and what we're watching because uh-huh. it's coming up May fifteenth, May fifteenth. Netflix, Netflix, the end of the Shira saga. I cannot wait. I uh, cannot wait. I will be also. I will be all about. I will be all about the. The um, to me the successor to Steven Universe as the most queered out animated series out there. Fair AF. Also on Friday the fifteenth, tune into the Outsports Podcast Network for Carly on Three Strikes You're Out. out. Ken Schultz's that's, podcast. That's right. We're gonna. I I can't wait to be a part. I really enjoy Ken Schultz. He's hilarious. I will just. He, I just enjoy first off funny. And knows some baseball. We're going to revisit. We're going to revisit a moment that stands in infamy for me as a Kansas City Royals fan, which was the, the Pine Tar game in 1983. Oh boy! We, I mean, I've been re I've been watching and rewatching the Pine Tar game, getting ready for this because I still, to quote Jack Buck, I still don't believe what I saw in the oh. Pine Tar game. Just, just the blatant. This is an example of Yankee imperialism. That's what it is. Billy Martin <laughs> manipulate Billy Martin trying to manipulate the rules, trying to get his way. Shameful. Billy. What win any shame. way you can. That's the Billy Martin shame. way. Shame, yeah, shame. They were, but they weren't see, but that's the thing about the one thing I want to talk about with Ken Schultz is how did the New York Yankees, with the lineup they had from 1986, only make the playoffs once? And only make the they made the playoffs once. They they appeared in one World Series and they lost that World Series. How did that team, how did the New York Mets in that same time span win more championships than the Yankees when the Yankees were loaded? Well, because of the Mets. Tune in to Three Strikes Throughout for the answer to all these questions and more Friday on Outsports. And tomorrow, Thursday, don't miss LGBT in the ring. All of it. Wherever you find your podcast, search for Outsports, and that's where you'll find us. Thank you, Carly, and thank you, listeners. Thanks, Don. It's always great to be here in the transporter room, and thank all of you for beaming up with us. Stay safe. See you next week. 